Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. I encourage the rest of you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 is our text, and we're just going to introduce verses 1 to 4 this week. Uh, we just finished up a fairly extensive study in chapter 3, I think. And in chapter 3, Paul has been correcting and he has been uh, instructing the Corinthian church about their wrong views of the church and gospel ministry. They've had some kind of odd thoughts, and Paul is um, needing to write to them to set things right. They had a very immature and superficial view of the church and the work of ministry and its leaders, particularly as we get to the end of chapter 3 and into chapter 4. They were very much captivated by worldly wisdom, and they had prioritized style over substance and partisan rivalry over the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And they had uh, prioritized confrontation and division over the conformity to Christ. And it was tearing down Christ's temple. God's temple which is what he refers to the church in chapter 9, uh, excuse me, verse 9 to 17. He refers to the church as God's temple. Uh, and there were very fearful consequences that he lays out at the end of verse 17 for the one who would seek to cause uh, division and to tear down the work of God, God's temple. So Paul corrects their wrong views of the church. He corrects their wrong views of gospel ministry. <clears throat> Excuse me. And in so doing, he also corrects us and he helps us to avoid making the same mistakes. We have these things written in the scriptures so that we do not fall into the same trap. We don't get caught up in the same sinful mistakes. But as we come to chapter 4, uh, it becomes clear at least that at least some of what was driving their claims to having belonged to Apollos or belonging to Cephas or belonging to um, whoever, Paul, uh, a lot of that was driven by their being against Paul, at least the ones that were not for Paul. As you read chapter 4, what you see is that there is a, a judgmental spirit among them that was pushing back against Paul's teaching and against his authority over them as an apostle. If you look at verse 3, 1 Corinthians 4, he says, But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. And so in that one statement there, he makes plain that that was exactly what was happening in their midst. They were judging Paul. They were examining him, not in the sense of rendering a verdict per se, but they were scrutinizing him in a sinful way. In verse 5, he says, Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time or prematurely. Again, this is a, a warning because that's what was happening. Sometimes you can extrapolate just by implication what it is that the issue is that he's addressing. And that's clear from verse 3, verse 5, even in verse 6. He says at the end that he writes these things and applies them to himself so that in you, uh, you may not uh, become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. So this, this is what was happening in their midst. There was, there was a wrong view of leadership. There was division. They were arrogant in be, uh, one against another. They had a wrong view of the church. They had a wrong view of the gospel. We saw that 
in chapter 1, particularly, and even into chapter 2, and they have a wrong view of church leadership. So chapter 4 deals pretty candidly with this wrong view of leadership. The Corinthians failed to understand <clears throat> excuse me, what kind of leadership God established for the church and what kind of leadership that God uh, endorses for his church. And many churches today make the same mistake. And they fall into this trap of not understanding the kind of leadership that God establishes for his church or his desire for the leadership in the church and the kind of leadership that he endorses. Now, we're a, I would say, a youngish church. We're not a young church anymore, but we're a youngish church. And like so many churches, we need leaders. We always need leaders. Uh, God's design for the local church is spelled out explicitly in the New Testament. And in uh, that, uh, several passages, for instance, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, um, we see that a plurality of godly men, elders, overseers, shepherds, they're just multiple terms for the same office. Uh, that is God's design for leadership in the local church. The pattern was established by God immediately in the beginning of the church that the local body would have a plurality of mature and godly men to provide spiritual direction and spiritual protection for the church, for the flock. That's what he refers to us as, the church. Now, not only is the church to have a plurality of, of elders, but the church is also to be assisted in the practical dynamics of ministry by deacons. Deacons are those who are themselves to have exemplary lives, to be mature in the faith, and um, they are to be those who provide the practical, at times, uh, leadership to various service in the church. Without the pastoral leadership of elders and the practical leadership of deacons, the church does not operate the way God has designed. And the body ultimately, over time, weakens and its influence diminishes. So as long as there have been churches, there has been this ever-present need for leadership and leaders in those churches. There's no point in a church's life cycle where they don't need more leaders. There's no point in a church's life cycle where they, need, where they don't need any more leaders. If it's a church in its infancy, they need at least one man to get the work started and to, and to get it uh, off the ground to provide preaching and teaching and, and shepherding and caring for the flock in its infancy. When a church begins to grow and develop and God adds to that church those who are being saved, when the church reaches adolescence, we still need more leaders. We need more leaders. Maybe we have a, a multiple leaders, but, but there's always a need for more. In adolescence, we now have maybe a few elders and a few deacons who are able to carry the weight of ministry on their shoulders, but there's always a need for more. Always. And then a church in its maturity, when a church has firmly established leadership and the church is, is fully functioning, self-sufficient, self-governing, there's still a need for leaders because we need to train up the next generation of leaders. There's always a need to replicate yourself in the church when it comes to leadership. So no matter whether it's in infancy or adolescence or even in maturity, there's never really a time when a church doesn't need leadership. There will never be a time when this church, Cascades Bible Church, doesn't need more leaders. And that means, that means there'll never be a time when we shouldn't be praying. 
the way God commands us to pray. Jesus says in Matthew 9, verse 38, that we're to pray to God that he would send out workers into the harvest, that the work never stops. The harvest is always ready to be taken in. Or as Jesus says in John 4, Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They are white for harvest. He was talking about the, the gospel ministry, the work that is before us. It is always ripe for harvest. We need workers, disciple makers, who will go out into the church. Listen, there's lots of people that like to attend church. The question is, are they going to be who God commands us to be? Are they going to be disciple-making disciples? That is the difference. Lots of people can attend a church, but are they going to be disciple-making disciples? Because that's the picture of the New Testament. That's the picture we see. There is a need for leadership, and there is a need for workers. But, of course, over the years, uh, many evangelical churches, because the need is constant, they seek to call and affirm individuals into positions of leadership that, are, that those people are not prepared for, nor are they qualified to fill. The, the world we live in is a very personality-driven culture, and um, that means that many church leaders are chosen simply on the basis of giftedness, natural giftedness, charisma, novelty, um, proximity to existing leadership, all the things Paul has been telling us the Corinthians not to affirm, not to elevate and establish, uh, because they are worldly in their nature. All those things are uh, what Paul tells us God rejects. So things like fleshly desire, personal ambition, um, they so often captivate those both in leadership and those in the pews. And God's criteria for leadership, God-glorifying qualities of biblical leadership, things like holiness and humility and, and faithfulness and patience, those things are pushed to the side in a lot of churches and even ignored altogether. Jerry Ragg says in his book, Exemplary Spiritual Leadership, that leadership positions in churches are frequently occupied by men who crave the praise of others. They lead by opportunism and self-promotion and for the purpose of receiving attention, end quote. At one point or another, we are all faced with the temptation to esteem and to elevate people based on pragmatism and professionalism rather than personal integrity and spiritual piety. We all feel that pull. We live, we have to acknowledge, we live in a bottom-line culture. We live in a bottom-line culture where all that matters is getting the result. All that matters is getting the results. It doesn't matter how you get there. It doesn't matter who you step over. It doesn't matter what the cost might be all that matters in our culture is the bottom line. Did you win? But that's not, that's not how God operates. We naturally then gravitate toward those who are self-made, those who are significant, those who are polished, those who are published, those who are influential, and those who are innovative. Those are things the world values. But literally, none of those things matter to God. None of them. And especially as it relates to leadership in his church. In fact, not only does God not 
value those things. Those are the kinds of things and people whom he opposes. Whom he opposes. We need to understand that there actually are leaders whom God opposes in the church. In the church. First Peter 5, verse 5 says, God is opposed to the proud. Okay, so God takes up a, a position of antagonism toward arrogant leadership. But he gives grace to the humble, which is where I want to be at all times. Those are words of warning that fall directly on the heels of his exhortation in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 5, where he addresses shepherds. Peter is pointing out that God opposes those leaders whose character is dominated by sinful pride and self-will, those whose motivations are money or personal glory or really anything other than the glory of Christ in his church. So Christian leadership has several essential qualities that set it apart from leadership in every other context. And so um, as we get into chapter 4 here, and Paul begins to address that, we see that there, uh, Paul is picking up the pattern of leadership that was established by Jesus himself. Christian leadership is leadership whose model and pattern doesn't follow the world. It's not worldly in its, in its template, but it follows after Jesus Christ. When Jesus contrasted the leaders the world esteems over and against the ones whom God uh, excuse me, the world esteems over and against one of the ones that God affirms. He said in Mark 10, verses 43 to 45, whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. And then he said this, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So, so really in that one statement, Jesus the sovereign of the universe powerfully and definitively thrusts himself forward. Jesus says, I am the pattern. I am the template for all leadership. Whether that's leadership in our homes, men, or leadership in the marketplace, or leadership in the church, which is really the, the heart of what he's addressing here, chapter 4, Christ's disciples are to follow after Christ's pattern of leadership. Now, as we come to verses 1 to 5, Paul's going to correct, as he has been in this whole section, the first six chapters are all correction in this letter. Paul is going to correct and instruct the Corinthians and us how to establish and evaluate leadership in the church. And I want to just direct your thoughts to verse 1, because Paul says this, Let a man regard us in this manner, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. The beginning here, verse 1, Paul tells us and tells them how we as the church are to regard leadership. That's what the us is referring to. The us is Paul, it is Apollos, it is Peter, it is whoever that would be in this position of responsibility in Christ's church. That's what he says. Let a man regard us leaders in this manner. 
In other words, this is a specific way he wants us to think about leadership. This is how a man or a woman or a young person, whoever, is to think about leadership in the church. So I want to consider this morning four essential qualities that mark out Christian leadership as opposed to all other kinds of leadership. Four essential qualities of Christian leadership. And they rise out of the text directly or very closely by implications. So four, four essential qualities of Christian leadership. And hopefully this will keep us from making the same mistakes that they did. This is the goal. First, Christian leadership is spiritual leadership. Okay? The first essential quality of Christian leadership is that it is spiritual leadership. Christian leadership, although it looks like this in a lot of contexts, is not organizational management. Okay? It is not entrepreneurial effort. It is not brand building. It is not social, economic, or political activism. Do you understand? Christian leadership is none of those things. And when it looks like those things, something's wrong. Something is wrong. At the end of the day, Christian leadership is spiritual leadership. It is spiritual leadership. The sphere in which it operates is spiritual, right? The church, the local church, Paul says and has been saying, is the temple of God. It is the place where God's specific presence dwells among his people. In the person of the Holy Spirit, God and the church come together. And when the church gathers, Christ is in our midst. The Spirit is in our midst. The Father is in our midst. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're always working together in all things. And when we come together as the church, we are the temple of God. He said that in chapter 3, and we talked all about that in a previous message. The sphere of our influence as leaders in the church is spiritual. It is spiritual. He calls the church in Ephesians 2 the household of God. It is God's household. And we provide spiritual leadership. The qualifications for leadership in the church are spiritual. I mean, 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 6 or 7, 1 Timothy, Titus 1, 5 to 9, lay out the specific criteria for godly leadership, for elders. And then later on in chapter 3, for deacons of 1 Timothy 3. And the qualifications, as you go down the list, are spiritual qualifications. They must be someone above reproach, a husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, apt to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money, managing his household well, and so forth. These are spiritual qualifications. Notice it says nothing about how eloquent they are. It says nothing about their resume. It says nothing about their... their uh, their corporate experience. None of those things matter. The qualifications are spiritual. The tools we use are spiritual. Right? In Acts 6, the elders tapped what some have called kind of the earliest deacons to go about the practical task of serving tables because he said, we must devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Those are spiritual tools. Those are spiritual tools. God hasn't given me the power to do anything but to minister the word of God 
and to pray for you. That's it. I do that practically as I teach and preach, but I do that privately in conversations and caring for souls. But I pray and I minister the word. Son prays and he ministers the word. These are the things that God has, the tools God has given us. The motivation is spiritual. Again, Paul at the end of his life, he wasn't expecting a fancy house or a car or anything. No cars back then, but he wasn't expecting anything. What does he say? The end of his life, he says, I fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. It, the, the, the motivation that drove him was God's approval, spiritual approval. The results of ministry, of Christian leadership, are spiritual. Colossians 1, Paul says, we admonish every man, we, we confront every man so that we may present every man complete in Christ. That's the goal. That's the result of faithful leadership. Galatians 4.19 is to see Christ fully formed in you. That's my desire. That's son's desire. That's any godly shepherd's desire is to see Christ fully formed in his church. They'd be sanctified. So from top to bottom, Christian leadership is spiritual leadership across the board. Secondly, Christian leadership is servant leadership. Christian leadership is servant leadership. Again, if we come back to the text, verse 1, he says, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants. As servants. And of course, Paul didn't make this up. This came from Jesus himself. Jesus himself. If you look at Matthew 20 for just a moment, I want to look at Matthew 20 for a few minutes. This is the parallel account in Matthew's gospel of what we mentioned by way of introduction here in Mark 10. But in Matthew chapter 20, in verse 20, there's this scene that's recorded, and Matthew picks up some other details that John leaves out, excuse me, that Mark leaves out, because Mark's a little bit more condensed. But we see this interaction between the disciples and Jesus, and it underscores that Christian leadership is servant leadership. We'll notice in verse 20 and 21 the exposure of uh, a wrong view of leadership. We can call this lordship leadership. Lordship leadership. In verse 20, he says, And the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, What do you wish? And she said to her, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and one on your left. So here we see James and John, and they bring their mother in to conspire with them to try and secure some position of authority in the kingdom. And uh, they want a position of prominence in God's kingdom. And uh, at the end of verse 21, he says, uh, you command that, that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and your left. I mean, this is, these are the places of greatest prominence, greatest honor. They are shamelessly angling for privilege. These are positions of authority. These are positions where everyone will look up to them. And they want this. They want this. 
See, for them, leadership is being large and in charge. That's how they view leadership. And so for them, being in a position of greatest visibility, being in a position of greatest influence is uppermost. This is a huge problem for the disciples because they all wanted this. They all wanted this. And this is how our world thinks about leadership. This is worldly wisdom. How many people work underneath me? How many people do I have authority over? How far and wide does my influence reach? Jesus, of course, has no part of this. Notice his response in verse 22. Jesus said, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they said to him, we are able. He said, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and left is not mine to give, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared by my father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. Understand, they were indignant because they were kind of upset that they got there first, more or less. Jesus exposes they have no idea what it is they're asking. This is immature. This is self-confidence. This is ignorance of what true Christian leadership ought to be. This is why Paul says in 1 Timothy 3 that an elder is not to be a new convert because they will become swelled up with pride and potentially fall into the same trap that Satan himself fell into, which is to exalt himself against God. Finally, in verses 25 to 26, Jesus exposes their leadership for what it is. He says, but Jesus called them and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Jesus lays an axe to the root of this tree, this prideful tree that they, that they have. Christian leadership is not heavy-handed. Christian leadership is not domineering. It is not self-seeking. It's not about being large and in charge. That is lordship leadership. And Jesus exposes it for what it is. And he makes it clear it has no place in God's kingdom. So what should we exemplify? Right? He's exposed this lordship leadership. What is it that God expects of leaders? Verse 26, whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Jesus makes it clear that Christian leadership, leadership whom that God exemplifies and elevates, is servant leadership. It is servant leadership. Jesus explains that true greatness isn't being large and in charge. It is being a servant to those entrusted to your charge. He explains it to be first in God's kingdom. Ironically, like we said last Sunday, is to be last in the eyes of the world. And as we get into chapter 4 later on, he will explain exactly how they as apostles, he said, are accounted last of all. Last of all. Why? Because they were godly leaders. They were godly leaders. To be a leader in God's eyes is to be a slave of all. In other words, the way up, ironically, is down. It's down. It's the opposite of what you would expect. 
That is God's irony. The greatest of all is the one who is not the biggest of all, the most influential of all, the most authoritative of all. It's the one who's the servant of all. The servant of all. This is the pattern. And then to cement his point home, he puts himself forward as the example. Verse 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He says, I am the Son of Man. That is not a small claim. He is claiming to be the Messiah, the one of whom all people must serve. If anyone deserved to be served, it was Jesus. And yet, he says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give up my life. And so what we see here, and we see it in Mark's gospel, and we see it in Philippians 2, which we read earlier, we see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that the pattern of chapter 4, verse 1, all Christian leadership is selfless. Christian leadership, whom God honors and glorifies, is sacrificial. Servant, Christian leadership, whom, that, which God blesses, is servant-minded leadership. It follows the pattern of Christ. Too many men adopt a lordship-leadership attitude. A lordship-leadership attitude. I remember when I was in seminary, some of the guys, one of the things, one of the drawbacks of the seminary I was at is a lot of the guys were young, including myself. I was pretty young when I got there, but um, some of these guys went from homeschool to Christian school to Christian college, and then they stepped right into seminary, and they stepped right out of seminary in their early 20s into churches. And a lot of those guys went into the church that they went to, and they blew those churches to pieces because they had no idea what it meant to be a servant. They had been elevated and, and, and affirmed and fawned over and given all the privilege and responsibility their whole lives and never had to do the hard stuff. For them, being a leader in the church was about being large and in charge bending everyone around your will, whether they were warmed through or not. Right? You know, like a piece of metal, you try and bend it when it's not warm or heated through, what happens? Sometimes it'll just crack if you put it under the right stress. And so rather than bending and molding people and warming them through with your servant leadership so that you can bend them to the will of Christ, these men were going in and cracking folks to pieces. And they tore churches apart. We must have, as leaders, a servant leadership mindset. And so I'd ask you men, how is your leadership? How is that? What does it look like in your homes, in the church? Are you a servant of all? Are you a slave of all? You say, yeah, I think so. I think so. Okay. Here's how you can tell. How do you respond when you're treated like a servant? If you respond with Christ, patience, and grace, and humility to being treated like a servant, then yeah, you have a servant's mindset. But if you don't, you don't. Do you erupt in anger 
when you're treated like a servant? Do you hit back five times harder? Do you get even? Do you have the gentleness and humility of Christ? Do you continue to obey God and entrust everything to him who judges righteously? That's the mark of true servant leadership. You can be treated like a servant. It doesn't change your attitude. It doesn't change your effort. You keep sacrificing. You keep serving. Because you know you don't deserve anything anyway. Second essential quality Christian leadership is it is servant leadership. Thirdly, it is spiritual leadership. It is servant leadership. Thirdly, Christian leadership is shepherding leadership. I get this again by implication, sort of. He says, let a man regard us as servants of Christ. The of Christ matters. It qualifies what kind of servants and whose servant we are which is the issue that he's going to address here in these verses when we get into them next week. See, remember at the end of chapter 3, he said, everything is yours. I'm yours. They're, everyone is yours. They were, to, they were your servants, but he says, I'm not your servants. I'm a servant of Christ. I'm here to serve you and to benefit you, and that's from God, but I answer to God. As shepherds, leaders, we are Servants of Christ. We are under shepherds who work under the chief shepherd. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. Paul says this, I mean, Peter says this, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, not as yet lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The image of God's people as sheep And God as the shepherd is a picture we see all over the scriptures. All over the scriptures. It's a good description. (laughs) I mean, we're sheep. Let's face it. We're all sheep. We're dumb. We're helpless. We We are in constant need of something from our Heavenly Father. I showed a video clip to our kids a few months ago, I think it was. And it was some... Some, you know, teenager, probably some Eastern European country, and there was this big rut that had, water had kind of cut out of the side of this dirt road. It was deep rut. And there was a kid in there pulling a lamb by its behind leg out of this rut. I mean, the whole, the, the thing's whole body was in there. And you see him pulling, 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 finally gets this giant lamb comes out of this hole. And he sets the thing down, and the lamb's all excited and free, and he's, and he bounced and jumped into the hole again about, I don't know, 20 yards down. I was like, that's us, man. That is us. No matter how hard we try, we are constantly jumping back into the hole. All we like sheep have gone astray. That's why the Lord is our shepherd. He's our shepherd, but we 
and we are his sheep, but the one who provides and protects and leads and feeds on a practical level is the shepherds in Christ's church. I mean, we're, we're the boots on the ground. God is the chief shepherd, and we certainly ex- give all glory and honor to him. But we, he mediates that care in the church through shepherds, faithful, hopefully faithful under shepherds. We, we, we mediate his provision, his protection, his direction for the church. And Christ is the chief shepherd. The word pastor, for all you Latin folks, comes from the Latin word for shepherd. That's what a pastor is. That's because Christian leadership is shepherding leadership. And we... We provide that care to those allotted to our charge. Verse 3, those not lording it over those allotted to your charge. Who is this? These are the people who have committed themselves to the church, the local church, the people who have thrown in their hat and said, this is my church. I'm here. I'm submitting myself to these leaders. You say, well, how how does that happen? Well, God brings them by in his providence, and then... We hear and see the fruit of their lives and we bring them into the fold. What then is our responsibility? What is our assignment as leaders? It is to shepherd the flock. We lead the flock. We feed the flock. We protect the sheep and make sure that they have the conditions in which they can thrive. And from a spiritual perspective, that's what God's given me to do. That's what God's given son to do and future elders of this church to do. We feed the flock as we try and minister God's word publicly and privately. We warn the flock of danger by confronting sin and calling them back into the fold. We direct the flock according to the will of God, he says here. In other words, we don't get to drive the church in a direction that we want. We drive it to the direction that God's word demands, according to the will of God, in accordance with Scripture. We do this on an individual basis. We do this on a collective basis. And we do it, hopefully, with joy. He says we'll do this, verse um, 2, with eagerness, not under compulsion, voluntarily with eagerness. And we do it by proving to be examples. We do it by setting a godly example. Not for gain, not under compulsion. And my mind always comes back to what Paul says in defense of his apostleship. Later on, when he writes to the Corinthian church, he confronts their confrontation of him. They had They had pushed back against him. They had slandered his name. They had said all kinds of things falsely about him. And and he finally just rises up in chapter 11 and verse 29. He says, who is weak without my being weak? And who is led into sin without my intense concern? That's the mindset of a shepherd. And I confess that, listen, there's times where I just want to run over and grab some of you. And just be like, please don't be weak. Please, for the love of God. And I mean that in the sincerest term. It burdens me to see sin in your midst. 
There's so much burden in the role of a shepherd because we care about the flock. Who is led into sin without my intense concern? What is our reward? Verse 4, 1 Peter 5, when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. Our reward is the approval of the chief shepherd. It's not a material. It's not practical. It's spiritual. The rewards, God blesses us. Believe me, God has blessed and cared and poured out his goodness to our family, to our church. But the real reward is spiritual. Christian leadership is shepherding leadership. It's the attitude we have to have to be tender and compassionate, alert and attentive, concerned. Fourthly, fourth and a final essential quality of Christian leadership, it is sanctifying leadership. It is sanctifying leadership. So turn back. Again, we're seeing this again from the text by implication 1 Corinthians 4, he says, We are servants, let a man regard us in this way, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. We have been entrusted with this responsibility to shepherd the flock, and the goal of our shepherding is sanctification. If you look at 1, Peter, or 1, Timothy, excuse me, 1 Timothy 4, verses 11 to 16, um, it stands out pretty powerfully. Because we said earlier that Christian leadership is spiritual leadership, and one of the arguments for that, or one of the ways that we defended that, was to say that the results are spiritual. The results are spiritual. The consequence of God-honoring Christian leadership is hopefully sanctification, practical holiness of the people under their care. And uh, we argued for that in a kind of a general sense by just a quick summary. But I want to lift up the hood for a second and see how that happens. Because he tells us in this, in this uh, passage in 1 Timothy. A Christian leader sanctifies those around him first through modeling. Through modeling. Verse 12. Let no one, Paul says to Timothy, look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. So, so we, a Christian leader sanctifies those around him by striving in the grace of God to practice what he preaches. Now, it doesn't mean that they're perfect. We're still sinners. We're still in process just like everyone else. But there should be a, a consistency Increasing consistency to their life that makes the message he preaches and teaches and shepherds believable. There should be a maturity about a Christian leader in his life that makes it easy for others to look up to him. So, so when he preaches about trusting God, they can see that he trusts God, no matter what's going on in life when he preaches about loving others, they could see him giving his life away for others. When he preaches about dying to self, they see him putting others first and not his own selfish desires. When he preaches about disciplining yourself for the purpose of godliness, they can see a man who's exercising self-control in every area of his life. 
So in many ways, a leader sanctifies those around him by the character of his life. Much more is caught than taught, more often than not. But it's not just modeled. We do model it. That's important. But it's also through communication. A leader sanctifies those around him through his words. Verse 11, prescribe, Paul says, and teach these things. What? All these things about the scriptures that he's spoken about in the preceding section. Verse 13, until I come, give attention to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and teaching. In other words, as a leader, we must speak the truth. We must speak the truth. We must exhort people to obey the scriptures. We must teach our children what God's word says and what it means and what the expectations of their lives are. We must exhort people to turn away from foolishness and sin and to pursue righteousness. I mean, this is our calling. This is how we sanctify the church. So we do it through our modeling, through our communication. Thirdly, through energetic involvement. By energetic involvement. Verse 15, take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Nothing inspires greater passion for Christ than leaders whose hearts and lives are sold out for Jesus Christ. Who are making Christ everything in their life. If you want to pull other believers forward in their Christian walk, be zealous. Be zealous. I would say this is the, probably the most important thing you can do as a parent to lead your children to Christ. Set a godly example in your homes all the time. Husbands, do you want to see greater passion for God in your wives? Be absorbed in the word and the work of Christ and let them get swept up in your way. Deacons, future elders, do you want to see the fruit of your leadership in Christ's church? Be so committed and consistent in your fight for joy in Christ that others cannot help but be drawn up into that. In many senses, a lukewarm or cold Christian is a contradiction in terms. It happens, but it should not be the norm. So a Christian leader sanctifies his church through modeling. He does it through communication, through energetic involvement. Lastly, through inescapable faithfulness. Inescapable faithfulness. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation for yourself and for those who hear you. As those around you see you day in and day out earnestly contending for the once for all delivered to the saints' faith, as they see that, and they see you walking with Christ year in and year out in seasons of prosperity and seasons of lack, in seasons of strength and seasons of weakness, if they see your life like a drumbeat, just living for Christ day in and day out, you will be an aroma of life to life. And you will confirm for them that you have been bought and belong to Christ and born of God. The faithfulness of your life will bear fruit. Not just in one life live for God, but in countless other lives live for God.
I was, um, as you know, some of you know, our backyard is a wasteland. And we had everything removed, and now it's just dirt and a lot of weeds. So I'm thinking about what do we plant back there, and how do we uh, landscape this section? And so I've been reading and researching a lot of plants, local plants and whatnot. There's all kinds of interesting resources out there. But I learned something interesting about grass and different plants. And there's a whole category of plants that are nitrogen-fixing. Nitrogen-fixing, meaning that they take, by whatever processes that they sort of um, go about to survive and live and thrive, they actually pull nitrogen and put it down into the soil. And so you kind of plant them around other plants that need that nutrient, and it helps them. So they actually become nitrogen-fixing uh, in the soil so that other things around it can thrive and grow and be strong. And that's a, that, that's, that's a fitting example of what we're talking about by living faithfully. Your life, it, it fixes a savor of Christ into the soil, so to speak, around others. And in your faithfulness, they're built up. That's what Paul says in Romans 1, that, that, that we are encouraging one another with, our own, with each other's faith. That, that's his desire. He wants to come to them so that, so that they can encourage him and they, he can encourage them, both each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. So... so that's the idea. That's how we sanctify as leaders. So, so these, are the, these are the essential qualities of Christian leadership. They're all baked into the text here in 1 Corinthians 4. Go back to our actual text. It says, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Managers of God's mysteries. The gospel. He's talking about the gospel. And gospel ministry. But when you look at these, ca- these character qualities, right? You look at all of these. It's servant leadership, and it's spiritual leadership, and it's, you know, all these things. You ask yourself, who's sufficient for this task? Who, who is sufficient for this task? And the answer is nobody. Nobody. To be called by God to lead others is to be called to lead them where only God can take them. And that provokes a level of apprehension. It should in an aspiring leader or in an actual leader. There is no room for overconfidence. There is no room for selfishness. There is no room for self-sufficiency. The ones who are self-sufficient are the least qualified for the task. That's why uh, A.W. Tozer says this about Christian leadership and ambition. He says, a true and safe leader is likely to be one who has no desire to lead, but is forced into a position of leadership by the inward pressure of the Holy Spirit and the demands of an external situation. Such were Moses and David and the prophets. I think there was hardly a great leader from Paul to the present day, but was drafted by the Holy Spirit for the task and is commissioned by the Lord of the church to fill a position he had little heart for. I believe it might be accepted as a fairly reliable rule of thumb that the man who is ambitious to lead is disqualified as a leader. The true leader will have no desire to lord it over God's heritage, but with humble, gentle, 
self-sacrificing and all, to, but but will be humble, gentle, sac- self-sacrificing, and altogether as ready to follow as to lead. When the Spirit makes it clear that a wiser and more gifted man than himself has appeared, I do think that we do. I would qualify that. I would say that he's right up to the point. I do think there has to be some ambition for leadership because Paul says that in First Timothy three. But I would say if that's all you have, you're disqualified. If it's just a desire to be up front or to be in charge. A Christian leader is one whose leadership is spiritual, it is servant-minded, it is shepherd-like, and it is sanctifying. And a godly leader recognizes that his adequacy and his sufficiency is from God. Who is adequate for these things? The answer is nobody. None of us are. Our adequacy, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, is from God, who made us adequate as servants. So when he goes into what he's going to say in verses 2, 3, 4, and 5, which we'll look at next time, Paul brings this all of that into what he's saying here in verse 1. And that undergirds his response. He understands that he answers to God. He answers to God for his leadership, not them. Not them. And so that's why he says it is this very small thing, that I may be examined by you or any human court. In fact, he says, I don't even examine myself. In other words, even if I think I've got it all figured out. It doesn't matter in the grand scheme because I answer to God. Who will evaluate and pass judgment? And so that sets up what he's going to say. But we need to understand what kind of leaders does God establish and what kind of leaders does God endorse? And I would say it fits those four things. So that's my desire. That's son's desire. That's Philip's desire as a deacon. And that's what we look for in men that we would call forward and ask to step into that responsibility of a shepherd, of a deacon in Christ's church. Men, I encourage you to think about how your life can measure up to that standard. Because whether you have the responsibility or not, uh, formally, this is what God, this is mature Christianity that God expects of all of his servants. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you have laid out clearly in your word what it means to be a godly leader, how we're to think about leaders, how we're to evaluate leaders, and pray that you would raise up leaders in our midst, men particularly who would seek to strive to measure up to the standard that you have set, men who understand the responsibility is a spiritual commitment, that it is servant-minded, that it is uh, selfless and, and that our service to you is, is one of uh, sanctifying those around us. I pray that you would stir up and send laborers into your harvest, Lord, because the fields are white for harvest. May you make and raise up in this church an army of disciple-making disciples who keep their eye on the prize, no matter what's happening. COVID, no covid Prosperity, lack, it does not matter. We live for you. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. That concludes this recording. 
We hope you have been encouraged by the message you have heard. For more information about the gospel of Jesus Christ, additional sermon audio, or information about Cascades Bible Church, visit us online at cascadesbiblechurch.com.